Hey, this is Dr. Rob. Welcome to Biblical Genetics. I'm coming to you today from Edfu, Egypt, site of an amazing and beautiful Ptolemaic temple started by Ptolemy III. It's one of the best preserved temples in the entire country. I'm here on a tour of Egypt with Creation Ministries International. It's actually my third tour. I've been struggling to find time to record episodes for you about Egypt because there are aspects of biblical genetics that apply to this country and are very fascinatingly interesting, but I'm so busy. I'm trying to herd a hundred people. We have three tour guides from CMI here and each of us in group of about 30 people, but it's like my little chicks and they're lost and they're wandering and they need directions and they need um, medicines and they need uh, meals and they need to get on the bus and get off the bus and it's wonderful and it's fun to be here and it's a blessing to be here but being a tour guide is a lot of work and this is not something I ever expected to be doing I can't believe that Creation Ministries International gave me this opportunity I am so thankful so happy to be working with this group of people now I know that this is a show on genetics, not archaeology, but there's something in archaeology I want to discuss because it impacts our understanding of human history. And it's a question of when the pyramids were built. A lot of people think the pyramids were built before the flood, which is not possible because they would be destroyed by the flood. Some people want to try to extend the timeline back, maybe take the Henry Morris approach and say, well, maybe there's missing generations in the Genesis 11 genealogy. That would give us more time. That's true, that would give us more time. But after extensive analysis of the biblical record, I don't see any evidence of missing generations. And that causes a problem. It, it means we really don't have that much time. Well, some people want to appeal to the Septuagint Bible, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament where in Genesis 11 there are 100 extra years per most of the patriarchs and it gives you about 800 extra years of history which makes it really easy to squeeze a lot more archaeology into the post-flood world. I'm not going to go there either. Um, I've tried, I, I wanted the, the Septuagint to be true. I really, it's so appealing to have those extra years to, to deal with some of these biblical questions. But after extensively analyzing it, I can't do that. I don't see it. I don't see evidence for it. I've got tons of counter evidences. But if you want to get into that, if you want to know, you're going to have to read a lot. There's a, a lot of scholarship that's gone into this. I've written several very long papers. Other people have written very long papers, lots of debate over the years. Go to creation.com and type in LXX, or there'll be show notes, some specific articles uh, that I've written that might help you along those lines. I don't think this Septuagint is the answer. There's a third approach that might help us understand when the pyramids were built, and that's um, if you try to shave off some centuries in Egyptian history. Uh, the famous archaeologist David Rawl, a lot of people have heard of him, a lot of people love his work. He's uh, subtracting more than a hundred years in some of the best attested periods of Egyptian history. That's really tricky because if we have a lot of archaeology and a lot of names and a lot of dates and you want to significantly adjust that time frame, that's hard. The other problem with this is that it destroys several biblical synchronisms. There are a lot of links between Egyptian history and biblical history. But if you take Rawls' approach and, and you subtract time, you mess up things like you know the four or five pharaohs that are named in scripture and what their names are and you specifically get rid of the Shishak in the Bible versus Shoshank 
in Egypt and there's a tight correlation time-wise and there's a tight correlation etymologically. There's a tight correlation with the history of Egypt and with Israel and what they say about the events of Shoshank or Shishak and it's all ruined. So I don't want to go there. I think the Bible beautifully fits Egyptian history through that time period. But the secular date of the building of the pyramids is before the biblical flood. We have to accept that. These are two things that must be reconciled. How do we reconcile it? Well, first we have to understand biblical chronology. There are ways to date the flood. There are ways to date the Exodus. There are ways to date all sorts of things in the Bible. If we start with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC at the hands of the Babylonians, and we add up the length of the reigns of all the kings in Egypt, uh, sorry, all the kings in Judah and Israel, you can date Solomon. And once you date Solomon, we know that he started building the temple in the fifth year of his reign. And we know specifically what month it was. And specifically, the Bible says it's 480 years after the Exodus. So now we know when the Exodus is. It's 1446 BC, plus or minus a couple of years, fine. But it's about 1446 BC. And then we know from the Exodus going backwards, using the lifespans of Moses and his father and his father and uh, using all sorts of other biblical dates, we can get a date for the flood. The secular date for Egypt is post-flood. Sorry, the secular... And the secular date... I don't know if this train is coming through on my microphone, but it sure is loud. It was so quiet here just a minute ago. <sighs> Trains, planes, car honks. There's a lot of environmental noise when you're trying to film outside and the sun is about to come up. It's going to totally change my exposure settings. So I'm going to have to hurry here because we're going to see what happens just in a couple of minutes. In fact, here it comes now. But back to the story. If only eight people survived Noah's flood, could you get the Egyptians building massive pyramids that required tens of thousands of people at least just a few centuries later? That's an honest question. Can you do it? The answer is yes, absolutely, easily, because human populations grow very quickly. And let me explain. If at Babel the clans were divided into, say, groups of 300 people, and let's say 300 people arrived here in Egypt 100, 200 years after the flood, 300 years after the flood. You can get tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even a million people within just a few centuries. And all we need is a few centuries. You need to know how much food the average family was growing. You need to know what taxation rate in terms of food the government could put on the people. And then you need to know how much food it would take to place a block. And some people have estimated maybe 20 loaves of bread, maybe 30 loaves of bread, maybe 30 loaves of beer per block. So that's including the cutting the block, the transporting the block, and the setting up the block. And honestly, most of the blocks of the pyramids did not come from far away. They literally dug them right next to the pyramids. Yeah, the granite came from far away, far to the south. Um, in Aswan, where we're going tomorrow, just a few hundred miles uh, upriver from here. All the casing stones came from just across the river, and they could transport it across the river very easily. So it's not a massive moving blocks challenge. It's a question of how many blocks and how much food it would take, because they're not using money. They have a barter system here at this early stage, and it's food. How much do you have to feed people? How much can you tax them? And so if the average family, you know, could 
could produce 10% more than they eat, then all you need is 10 times more people or farms than you have workers. If you only need 7,000 workers, you have a massive landscape here that can produce a massive amounts of food. And every time humans have invaded a highly productive land, their population has grown incredibly quickly. We see that time and time again in human history. Populations start getting limited when the land runs out, when there's a drought or famine or war, disease and things like that. That's what checks people. But early on, when there's not a lot of people, populations grow explosively. And so it does not take that much time or that much work for you, for you to have enough people to build a pyramid, even the Great Pyramid. But there are questions about how many blocks, because there is a hill inside the Great Pyramid. And the second pyramid, uh, they, obviously they carved the ground around it because there's a, a bit of a cliff behind the pyramid as they flattened out the base. Well, what's inside it? How much did they leave inside that pyramid? And if you have just a hill you know, maybe 30% the height of the pyramid, that's most of the mass of the pyramid. It's a lot fewer blocks. So maybe it's not 2.7 million blocks. Maybe it's only 1 million blocks. Maybe it's only 100,000 blocks. I don't know. I don't know the answer. No one actually knows the answer. No one knows how much material is inside the pyramid that they then put blocks around. But it doesn't matter. Even in the most conservative case, even in the worst possible case, let's say the population of Babel was small. Let's say only a few people got here to Egypt. Let's say they had to use the maximum number of blocks. We still have time. The time, though, has to be cut out of Egyptian history. And the time can be cut out of easily the pre-dynastic period. We don't have much data for the pre-dynastic period. There's some pots, there's some people, there's things, but there's not a lot of graves. It's not like they lived here for thousands upon thousands of years because then there would be cemeteries upon cemeteries. There would be so many graves we couldn't count the number of people. They're not there. It's as if that time wasn't there either. We can also probably remove centuries in the Middle Kingdom and the First and Second Intermediate periods. The Middle Kingdom has hardly any archaeological attestation. The intermediate periods are just periods of chaos where there's not an easy history to build. Sure, we have pyramids. We have the kings. We have a pretty good chronology of that time period. We have the new kingdom. We have the kings, you know, King Tut, King Akhenaten, Queen Nefertiti, um, Queen Hatshepsut. We have their mummies. We have their names. We have their chronology. That's a pretty solid time period. We have the third intermediate period. We have the Ptolemaic period, the Roman period. Those are pretty solid. Any date you can adjust uh, yeah, five years here, ten years there, but that does have an accordion effect. If you adjust a Ptolemaic date by ten years, everything before it also adjusts. If you go back in time to the New Kingdom and adjust something there by five or ten years, everything before that also adjusts. It. And so now you have the Ptolemaic ten years, maybe New Kingdom ten years, you go to the Old Kingdom ten years, and all of a sudden you've got the earliest dates are, are going back and forth easily by centuries easily. Those dates are not firm. They're not hard fixed dates. They're very flexible. And I suspect there's some places in the middle that you start dropping little bits of time, not massive centuries necessary, just little bits. And it all adds up to an accordion effect that will crunch Egyptian history into something that's biblically tenable. So it's not a challenge population wise. It's not a challenge time wise. 
It's not even a challenge archaeologically or architecturally. We have enough people, we have enough time, we can build the pyramids even in the worst possible conservative case. If we have more time, it's easier. So if Rawl is right, if the Septuagint is correct, in any number of ways you can adjust the timeline and get it to be longer, missing generations, it's easier. But we don't even have to go there. We can take the hardest case and still say it works biblically. By the way, Biblical Genetics is not sponsored by Creation Ministries International. Now I know I'm here in Egypt and I'm actually getting a free trip to Egypt. I can't believe I get to do this. But I'm piggybacking on my travels to do my filming. If you'd like to help support me in my work, it's simple. There'll be a link in the show notes or you can just go to patreon.com and sign up to be a monthly donor if you like. Just search for Biblical Genetics on patreon.com or if you just want to do a single donation, the best way to do that is buymeacoffee.com. It's just simple, three, six, nine dollars, something like that. But it's just an easy way to say, hey Carter, here's a little tip. Thank you for your work. So thank you for listening to my podcast. Thank you for watching my videos on YouTube and on Facebook and on Rumble and a couple other platforms I'm toying with. I love you all. You're wonderful. And I want to encourage you. Don't be afraid of scripture.